Hey, welcome to Table Flippers Podcast, Ministry of Greater Worship Christian Church in Lancaster, California. I am your host, Apostle Robert Enos. This is where we talk about the issue the church faces and how the church should respond to those issues. Here we will talk about doctrine, theology, politics, social and cultural issues, and how the church is to deal with these things. So get ready for a large dose of truth and get ready for the tables to be flipped. Here at Table Flippers, table flipping is what we do. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. I'm glad that you can join us for yet another podcast. And I'm sure that you're very aware of these things that our world seems to be getting darker and darker and darker. And as frustrating as that might seem, God has an answer. It's not over yet, so be encouraged. That's the reason why we talk about these things. Let's flip the tables that need to be flipped. Let's chase the money changers out of the temple and get this thing to where it really needs to be so that God can move among us in a powerful, powerful way. It's not over, ladies and gentlemen. In the last podcast, I dealt with Eli and his sons. This was taken from my book, A Time for Transition. I highly suggest you buy this book. I really enjoy this book. It's hard for me to read this book because, of course, I wrote it. Of course, I'm having fun with it. But it it's such a part of me that when I'm reading this book, just to highlight some areas that I want to share with you, I end up highlighting almost everything on every page. And of course, I can't bring all of that to you. I might as well just sit down and read it to you. But I highly suggest you buy this book because it's a type of prophetic book for the day that we're in. And I'm dealing with the time of Eli, Samuel, David, Saul, uh, and all of that. But it really speaks to us today. That's why I spoke from that or wrote from that place and from that time. It's really interesting. So Eli and his sons was the last podcast, the title of it, and that was from the first chapter. And um, I want to talk about uh, chapter two. I want to speak about some things in chapter two, but I do want to brush up on something from chapter one. I touched upon it, but I really want to I really want to lay this foundation because in the church world today, we have this misunderstanding of who God is. And if we don't know who God is, no matter how much we claim to know God, know his word, we've missed it completely. Because many churches, if not all churches, but most churches today, especially in America, preach and teach and present a God that is loving. And that is true in that sense, but we've missed understood or misrepresented true love because remember god is love and because of that we say things like god will never do anything he's not mad we even sing songs about it god's not angry with you well what if he is i can show you in scripture new testament i don't even have to go to the old testament new testament where god gets mad at people you know um god would never hurt anybody um no, I don't read that either. That's not scriptural. Yes, God is loving, but we have to embrace his definition of love, not the world's definition of love. So stop bringing carnality and the flesh into uh, the description of who or what God is. When the Bible says God is love, now we need to see his interaction with human beings across the board to see what true love is. See, and the reason why this is important, because I'm going to read something to you straight from Scripture. 
that a lot of Christians are going to have a problem with understanding that the God that I'm reading about is the same God that you and I are supposed to be worshiping and serving. And this comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. It says, If one man sins against another, God will judge him. That in itself, many Christians will have a problem. Oh, God doesn't judge us, so you shouldn't judge me. Come on, give me a break. The Bible says that if one man sins against another, God will judge him. It goes on to say, But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord decided or desired to kill them. This is speaking of Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli. It says very clearly, they did not heed the voice of their father because Eli was corrected by God and Eli corrected Hophni and Phinehas. But they did not heed the voice of their father Eli because the Lord desired to kill them. That's what it says in Scripture. That yes, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, it says that the God of love, who is love, not just has love, but is love, desired to kill two people, Hophni and Phinehas. And there's a lot of reasons for it, but you need to get that through your heart and your mind. Because there's a lot of people in the church that claim to be Christians that are sinning in open, blatant, rebellious sin. And when anybody tries to correct them on it, they poo-poo it, they push it off, they say we're religious, we're legalistic, uh, we have a pharisaical spirit, all of this stuff. And then they continue with their sin and feel okay about it. And the whole time thinking, well, God's a God of love, so he must be okay with this because he loves me. Well, the same God of love, when he saw Hophni and Phinehas causing his own people to sin and abhor the sacrifice, the very thing that, that brought his people and God together, when God saw this, he was very upset and very angry, chastised Eli several times. Eli would just kind of like, oh, okay, kids, um, you know, maybe you shouldn't do it kind of a thing. And for that reason, God desired to kill Hophni and Phinehas. As a matter of fact, again, if you read that whole story, which is in chapter one of my book, go buy the book, please. It's in chapter one of my book. You find that Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were all killed on the same day. They all died on the same day. The ark of God, which represented the presence of God, was taken by the enemy. One of the sons of Eli's, uh, literally his wife had a baby that day. Just as the baby was being born, somebody came in and said, your son and your father-in-law is dead. So she named, and she died as well in childbirth. What a horrible story this is, but it all happened all on the same day. And before she died, she named the baby Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. Why? The priesthood was in ruin and the ark or the presence of God was gone. And so this child had to bear the name or the title of the horrible situation that Israel was now in because of the sin the apathy of Eli and the sin of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. So now this child for the rest of his life 
went around being known as the glory has departed because the day he came into the world was the day the glory left Israel. This is why it's so important, pastors, church leaders, and Christians, train up your child right. Discipline them correctly. Love them, of course. But no more PK syndromes in our churches. None of that. And pastors and church leaders, if you can't take care of your children, you can't take care of your own home, then get out of the pulpit. We don't need any more Eli's in the body of Christ. And we don't need your children to become Hophnius and Phineas in our churches, causing people to turn away from the very things that are supposed to enrich in their relationship with God. If your children and the way you raise your children are causing people to turn away from God or be dismayed or give them the wrong idea of what it is to be a Christian, shame on you. You need to get out of the pulpit until you get your family together and your head together. You see, among other things, one of the things, one of the problems, I should say, of that type of leadership in the church is it hinders the prophetic. Now, some of you that believe the prophetic is done away with because we don't need it. Well, I have it. <laughs> Let me tell you something. You have missed the mark big time. The prophetic will always be needed as long as there's God's people or people on the earth. There will always need to be spokesmen for God or on behalf of God to his people or people in general. This will always be needed. That'll be another podcast in the near future, I hope. But in 1 Samuel 3.1, it says, Now the boy Samuel, now remember, the Samuels comes in. Hannah drops Samuel off for Eli to raise up at a certain point. And it says, Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. Why was there no widespread revelation? Because the ones that were entrusted with it, Eli and his two sons, were in sin and apathy. And God could not trust them with the word of the Lord, at least on a level that can break the nation into new realms and new levels. So now God had to raise up this, this boy Samuel to replace Eli. And the interesting thing about Samuel is Samuel is being raised up right in the house with Eli by Eli. That's, ladies and gentlemen, hey, you, you church leaders out there, you should know, know this. If you're messing around with sin, you're not taking care of business at home, you're apathetic, uh, you're just putting on a show and you know it, and you know it, come on, you know it. If you're not the same person in the pulpit on Sunday that you are on Monday or on Tuesday, then you're putting on a show. You're an Eli. All right? And here's the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. God is raising up Samuels right under your nose. God is raising up Samuels right under your nose. And those very ones that you are raising up but you can't recognize because the revelation or the prophetic word of God has been stripped from you and you can't even recognize the Samuels, soon they will be taking your place. Soon they will start hearing the voice of God much clearer than you ever did. And soon they will be entrusted with the word of the Lord as God shows them what's going to take place with you. It's a great day for the people of God as a whole, it's a terrible day for the Eli's, the Hophni, and Phineas's among us. 
You see, because again, Eli represents stagnant and lethargic spiritual leadership, and Hophni and Phinehas represent blatant, rebellious, sinful leadership. And unfortunately, we have a lot of that in the church world today, and God is going to be dealing with all of it in a very swift manner. But he won't touch it. It seemed like these guys are going to just get off the hook. He won't touch it until Samuel is ready to not just hear the voice of God, but to do it and lead God's people. You watch. You see, you'll see this. Chapter 2 in my book is called Raising Up Samuels. Again, the book is Time for Transition. Raising Up Samuels. And this is what's taking place today. This chapter is chock full of just revelation and information that I, again, I pray that you get this book and read it. Um, you can go to my website, which I talk about at the very end of every uh, podcast. It gives our website. You can go find it there and such. Or you can email me. Again, our email address is there and all that. So please get this book and, um, and read it. But let me read just from the first page of chapter 2, Raising Up Samuels. It says, As we have found, the nation of Israel was sliding into sin and depravity while under the leadership of Eli and his two sons. This was because Eli, the high priest and judge, had allowed corruption to come into the priesthood primarily through his sons. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, had positions as priests under their father and caused the people to sin because of their own sin. Eli knew of his son's behavior and the result of their conduct and did nothing about it. As a result of this, God sought to kill Hophni and Phinehas so that the priesthood could be restored. Now listen, this is the son of the high priest Eli. They're two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Because they were in blatant rebellious sin, it caused the people to be in sin. That's the things, that's the way it works. That's the domino effect. And Eli, because he was a weak father and a weak priest, a weak leader, didn't do anything about it. Even when God rebuked Eli, he just kind of went over there and slapped their wrist, but he didn't remove them from their position. He didn't do anything to really restore them to a place of righteousness and holiness. He just kind of gave this lame little slap on the wrist and just kind of walked away and let them continue in their sin to the point that God got so angry and frustrated with all of them, he says, okay, now I'm going to kill Hophni and Phinehas because of what they're doing to my children, to my people. Uh, pastors and leaders, I'm telling you right now, if you got sin in your life, and you're ch especially if it's causing your children to sin, I couldn't tell you how many pastors that I've known over the years or known of that have cheated on their wives, left their wives. I was thinking of this just yesterday. Um, you know, the Bible says that elders are supposed to be the husband of one wife. Okay, one wife. So somebody who works in the church on that level should be the husband of one wife. Not one wife at a time. One wife. And yet we have this revolving door marriages with some of our ministers. And then we expect the God to bless our, us personally and then our churches accordingly. And we can't figure out why the people in the church are falling into sexual sin, divorce, uh, um, 
adultery, fornication. Well, it starts at the top, ladies and gentlemen. It starts at the top. There is an older gentleman here in the ministry here in our hometown. I have to tell you one thing about him I really appreciate. Early on, uh, he and his wife had some problems and she ended up divorcing him. He never remarried. He stayed single. And every time I knew him for several, I still know him, know him for several years now. He would, he would tell me, that's my wife. Yeah, but, but, but you guys aren't even together. No, 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 you don't understand. That's my wife. He wouldn't even think of being with another woman because his wife, his first wife, though she divorced him, that was his wife. And I had to say, I had to respect that. And even for many, many years, even when people came to him seeking advice for marriage, he wouldn't give it. So I had to respect him at least for that because he knew that's my wife. I don't want another woman. He stayed single, lived as a single man in that regard. But in his heart of hearts, he was still married to his wife. Now, I have to respect that. I have to honor that. I, I, I don't know about this, you know, these, this turning door, this revolving door marriage kind of thing with a lot of these guys. Been in there. I, I've known some pastors that have been third and fourth marriages. What in God's name is that? What is that? Somebody somewhere got some issues and some problems, and they don't need to be in the pulpit teaching our people. And they certainly don't need to be up there trying to raise children and turn out these PKs that turn out just as bad as they are, or sometimes worse. No wonder there's so many problems in the body of Christ when it comes to sexual sin. Because of our pastors and our leaders, they can't even keep it together. Anyways, let's get back to this. At the time that God is dealing with Eli, or just before the time God's dealing with Eli and his sons, this woman, Hannah, who happens to be Samuel's mother, Hannah comes along, comes to the temple, and she's pouring her heart out to the Lord. And this story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 1. But she's pouring out her heart before the Lord. But words aren't coming out of her mouth. She's kind of a, she's mouthing it, but she's not saying anything because it's, it's her anguish and grief of heart. And she's weeping before the Lord. And she's praying before the Lord. And she's basically saying, Lord, let me have a child. And if you give me a male son, I will not only promise that he's going to be a Nazarite all the days of his life, but I will give him to you. This is how Samuel ended up being with Eli and being raised by Eli at the tabernacle. But as Eli is sitting there watching Hannah on her knees, crying before the Lord, mouthing something, but no words are coming out, he assumes she's drunk. Now, this is um, an interesting thing because a lot of people say, I could see that happening. I'll be honest with you. I guess in the natural, I can see it happen. Yes, in the natural, I could see it happen. But remember, Eli is supposed to be the spiritual leader of Israel. Eli is the high priest. He's supposed to not only have the heart of God's people, but he's supposed to have the heart of God and bring those two things together. And he was so disconnected from God's heart. And what's supposed to be happening at the house of God, which is prayer, that he misses it. So what he, he mistakens heartfelt prayer for drunkenness. This shows that separation 
that distance between what he is supposed to be doing and what he is supposed to be and really what's going on at the house of God. Because remember, it was that same tabernacle where his sons were sleeping with the women who were coming to worship. And here Hannah is pouring herself her heart out. Now, why would he miss it so easy? Because he was not given to prayer. He missed it because he was not a man of prayer. Should have been a man of prayer. But I want to share something with you. Jesus said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. You'll find that in Matthew 21, 13. You'll find that in Mark 11, 17. And in Luke 19, 46. So at least three places, Jesus is it's quoted as Jesus saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. So what was the t- tabernacle to be? A house of prayer. Listen, Hannah understood this. Eli, the high priest, didn't. Hannah took advantage of it. Eli didn't. Hannah was pouring herself, her heart out to God in the place of prayer. And Eli was sitting in judgment of her in the place of prayer. And Jesus, when he quotes this, my house shall be called a house of prayer. He's actually quoting Isaiah 56, 7. So this isn't something just some New Testament idea that Jesus came up with. This is why the the original tabernacle and then later the temple were created to primarily be a place of prayer. And so I say that because, you know, even today, many of our churches are everything but houses of prayer. We have houses of worship and worship is fine, but that's not what the Bible says the house of God is supposed to be. We have houses of teaching and lots of preaching which that needs to be toned down a little bit and people need to be taught the word. But even still, the Bible doesn't say that the house of God is supposed to be a house of preaching or a house of teaching. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. So the number one thing that's supposed to be happening under the roof we call church is supposed to be prayer. Now, pastors, I want you to think of your weekly bulletin. If you have a copy of it, pull it out right now and look at it. How many prayer meetings are in there? And I want you to tally it up right now. How many hours are given to prayer in your church versus how many hours you spend um, during a Sunday morning service or a Sunday evening service or Sunday school? How much prayer actually goes on? So let me give you an example. If you, on Sunday morning, if your service is two hours long, then you should have a minimum of two hours of prayer in the house of God as well. And the reality of it is you should have a minimum of an hour per day. When I say you, yes, you pastor should be there praying a minimum of an hour every day, but you should open the doors for prayer and encourage and teach your people to be there and expect them to be there. One of the things that we have at my church is if you want to be a worker in the church on any level, if you want to go scrub toilets or teach our children or whatever, be on the worship team, You have to be at one of the prayer meetings. We have several of them throughout the week. One of the prayer meetings during the week. And every one of our prayer meetings are a minimum of an hour. So you have to give an hour of prayer to the church before you could even work in the church. And that's just the corporate prayer. We do expect people to pray every day. I encourage the people to pray. I encourage people to read the Bible and get into the Word every day. This isn't being done enough. You say, yeah, yeah, it is. No, it isn't. Recent studies 
Recent studies, and this is from www.churchleaders.com, but recent studies have shown that the average prayer life of a church leader is about 30 minutes a day. 30 minutes, that's average. So that means there's some church leaders, praise God, that are praying a little bit more, but there's many that are praying less. If 30 minutes is the average, that means there's people below that. Pastors, do you know how terrible this thing is? 30 minutes? And and so all of you who go to these churches, I want you to, maybe you should go ask your pastor, hey, pastor, how long? What's your prayer life like? How long do you pray every day? Every day. And if he can't really honestly say, I pray at least an hour, Listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. Maybe it's time for you to think about going to another church because that tells me and that should tell you that on any given day, you're not being prayed for by the leadership of your church. Again, why am I talking about these things? Why are we called table flippers? Why am I hammering this, especially church leaders? Because we've got to get past this low-level nonsense in the body of Christ. I don't know about you, but I'm tired of hearing about the scandals in the body of Christ. I'm tired of hearing about this well-known preacher who fell into sin, fell from grace. And now it affects every one of us, including myself. Because when I go out on the streets and I meet people and I try to tell them about Jesus and I try to win them to the Lord, often what I hear, I'm being mocked and ridiculed because of the sin of some other guy that I've never even met. Now you say, well, that's none of your business. It is my business. Because we're all in this together. It is my business. For the same reason that Paul confronted Peter on his sin directly to his face. It is my business. And it's your business as well. We've got to start holding one another accountable. I'm not talking about in a legalistic way. I'm talking about in a loving way. Because if you fall, we all get hit hard. If I fall, we all get hit hard. But if we're watching out for one another, lifting one another up, praying for one another, holding one another accountable, the chances are of falling into sin and bringing embarrassment to the body of Christ, that lessens. Maybe, just maybe, we can keep one another from falling into sin. Just maybe. And maybe we could just build one another up in such a way that we won't be given to that in the first place. Now remember, one of the greatest tragedies of uh, Eli and Hophni and Phinehas was there was no what they called in that time widespread revelation. And the widespread revelation was basically the prophetic word of the Lord, but not just a quote-unquote thus saith the Lord kind of word but a breakthrough revelation, a revelation that comes from heaven that causes the people of God to break through all the barriers around them. And that could be on any level. That could be spiritual. That could be physical. That could be in regards to uh, military. If the enemy is attacking them, they need that breakthrough understanding of how to win the battle. It could be financial. It could be anything. And that was very, very rare in those days because of the sin of the spiritual leadership. So Hannah made this promise that, God, if you give me a son, I'm going to give him to you. And Hannah kept her promise to the Lord and gave Samuel to the Lord through Eli to be raised up in the tabernacle as a priest. As difficult as this was for her, Hannah fulfilled her promise by bringing Samuel to the tabernacle. Eli 
would from that point raise him, teach him, train him, and nurture him. And what Eli was doing was was raising up his replacement because it was through Samuel that God was going to restore Israel to the word of the Lord as well as widespread revelation. You see, when a problem of this magnitude, the sin, the people turning away from God, no widespread revelation, the people being dismayed, abhorring the very sacrifice, the very things that bring them close to God, when these types of problems arise, and if you're honest with yourself and you look around what you see in America and our church world today, we're there again. We're there again. We're facing these same problems. But when a problem of this magnitude is found, God will raise up a prophet. So some of you who think that prophecy and prophets are no longer needed, I'm telling you, they're more needed now than probably any other time in our personal um, history, the history of the United States, the history, uh, at least modern history, the prophets are needed. And whether you believe in them or not, hey, listen, just go get your doctrine straight. Just go get your doctrine straight. All right? The prophets are rising up. So that means the Samuels are coming back on the scene. And the Samuels are not going to just hear God's voice, but they're going to restore widespread revelation to the church of God. And the church of God is going to break through every obstacle. So some of you that are sitting around, instead of looking for Christ, you're looking for Antichrist. Maybe you should shift and change and start looking upward instead of looking outward. Look upward to to the God who has all the promises. And he's not going to send back Christ, at least not yet. Christ is coming, but not yet. Instead, he's going to send back some Samuels. He's going to send back some Davids. He's going to send back some Gideons. He's going to send back those who have the prophetic word of the Lord and a burning heart for God and, and being in a right relationship with him that's going to come, come into the church world and break through and bring that widespread breakthrough revelation that's going to put us on the other side in a powerful way. Through Samuel, the political, religious, and financial institutions of Israel were to be restored to correct function. Through Samuel, God was restoring the breakthrough revelation that the nation needed in order to flourish as it should. It comes down to this. I used to say this all the time. I still do every now and then, but once I put it in this book, you can read about it. It's this statement, this. You cannot change what you are reluctant to engage. Or I say it like this sometimes. You cannot fix what you are unwilling to face. Why, do, why am I doing table flippers? Why did I write, write this book? Why do I speak the way I do? It forces the issue. It forces the issue. We have to now face these things. And if our hearts are open to God, open to truth, and our eyes are open to really what's going on around us, if we find ourselves acting like or living like or being like Eli, we will fix it or we will turn around or turn away from it completely. And if that's the case, hey, the same end of Eli could be your end. If we look and, it, and we realize we raised up some Hophnius and Phineas's around us, or maybe we have become that, there's still chance to turn around and repent. If you're willing to face it, you can repent. If not, hey, same end of Hophni and Phineas, what we read, could happen to you. The truth is, you could be one of those Samuels, or you could be a David, or one of those that God can use to bring back into the church world what we have lost, starting with widespread breakthrough revelation. 
You could be one of those prophetic voices that brings truth back to the body of Christ. But the reality of it is you will be none of those. You will not be the answer as long as you are the problem. You will always be a problem if you refuse to face your own issues of the day. Now, before anybody starts throwing stones at me and says, well, maybe you should do the same thing. I do. I have a good network of people around me that have no problem pointing out my issues and my problems. And even still, even if I was completely missing it, that's really not even the point. It's The point is that this, listen, anyone that refuses to face the issues of the day, their own issues are going to be left behind one way or another or worse. The ones that are willing to face the issues, God will restore, God will, uh, um, God will heal, he'll restore, and he'll put the prophetic word in their mouth and connect their heart to him and then release us to bring about the change that needs to be back into the church. Because listen, this is God's church. Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my church. Don't think that it's going to get too far before Jesus steps in and starts knocking a few heads together. God's going to do it. God's going to clean us up. God's going to fix us. But we have to be willing to face it or we will end up like Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. That goes for me as well as it does all of you. This is our time. This is our chance. This is our hour. We can shine. We can move mountains. We can bring about a move of God that not only revolutionizes the church, but then the, re the church revolutionized the world. And that's what God is after. So let's be like Samuel. Let's be that David. Let's be the ones that bring the widespread revelation or bring the Goliaths down of our age. You can do it. I can do it. We can do it. Thank you for joining us here at Table Flippers. I would love to hear from you. You can find my contact information at www.gwcclancaster.org. That's gwcclancaster.org. Please let us know how we are doing. I look forward to hearing your thoughts and comments. Have a fantastic day.